Good afternoon and welcome to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg and we're live for an hour each weekday afternoon so we can talk to you if you call in with your questions about the Bible, about Christianity, or about any disagreements you might have with the hope. Uh, the number to call is 844-484-5737. The lines are full right now, but if you call a little later, good chance you'll catch an open line. 844-484-5737. Let's go directly to the phones and talk to Paul from Colorado. Paul, welcome. Yeah, Steve. Uh, say, I, something I've thought about for a long time, I thought maybe you could have some information on it because I, I couldn't find anything, but I'm sure you've heard of the Young's Analytical Concordance mm-hmm. and the Strong's uh, Exhaustive Concordance. And I've always wondered, how did those guys do that without computers or anything? I know there's lexicons and all that, but it still just seems to me like it's almost impossible. <laughs> well, they did it with great uh, labor. Uh, and, and they didn't just do it by themselves. They had teams, you know, uh, teams going through the Bible over and over again to pull out all the instances of each word. But it is an amazing, it is an amazing resource, especially when you consider it was done before there were computers. Uh, and before there was any modern technology, really. So, yeah, I, all I can say is uh, I've wondered that myself when I was younger, and I, I do use the Strong's Concordance uh, quite a bit, and uh, just thought, well, what an immense amount of work went into this. And yet, you know, you can buy a Strong's Concordance, at least, I don't know, you used to be able to get one for under 20 bucks or something like that, and it's like one of the most valuable things on the planet besides the Bible. So... Um, now, when I was younger, I mean, there are there are other concordances besides the Strong's, and any of them require required somebody a lot of work. Uh, the first concordance I had was Cruden's concordance, and then of course there's Young's and Strong's are both very well known. Uh, there was a saying years ago among my friends that uh, Strong's was for the strong, uh, Young's was for the young, and Cruden's was for the crude, and uh, that would be kind of a good hierarchy of value of those uh, those. Uh, concordances, though none of them are crude, uh, but the crudens, of course, doesn't have as much complete information. And Young's arranges the the information differently, uh, a little less convenient for my liking. So I, I do like the Strong's concordance best, but uh, when you look at it, you do appreciate the amount of work somebody had to go into uh, to to put that out for us, and what a convenience it is to us now. Uh, Jimmy from Staten Island, New York, welcome. Hey, Steve. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I got a quick uh, question for you. Do you believe uh, regeneration is caused by man and the effect is believing, or do you believe that regeneration is something that man does, initiates, and then God saves him? Well, you understand my uh, question? Yes, I do, because as a Calvinist, your belief would be that uh, regeneration precedes faith uh, because your Calvinism would tell you that before a man believes, before a man is regenerated, he cannot believe because he's dead in trespasses and sins. So a Calvinist would say, of course, if a man's dead in trespasses and sins, he can't believe, he can't repent. And therefore, even in order to believe and repent, God must first bring him to life. And that is regeneration or what we call being born again. Uh, whereas uh, the Bible nowhere mentions 
that people have to be born again before they can believe, or that regeneration precedes uh, faith, which is the Calvinist assertion. Uh, what the Bible actually does say is that you believe and you receive life because you believe. This is everywhere the order in which the Bible mentions it. When, when Jesus was talking to Zacchaeus, excuse me, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he mentioned, you know, uh, you must be born again. And Nicodemus said, well, how, how can this be? And Jesus said, well, uh, you know, it's like when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Even so, the Son of Man must be lifted up. So whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, he's referring to the story in the book of Numbers, of course, where people were bit by snakes. They were dying. God provided um, Moses to raise up a bronze serpent on a pole with the command that anyone who would look at the serpent would be healed. Now, Jesus said, I'm going to be lifted up like that. The Son of Man's going to be lifted up just like that serpent was. And whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. In other words, they'll, they will have life because they believed in him, just like the people in Israel were healed because they looked at the snake. Now, there's no suggestion in the book of Numbers that the people who looked at the snake had any special advantage over those who did not prior to their looking. Uh, but because they looked, because they met the conditions, they were healed. And Jesus says it's parallel to that. It's that whoever would believe in Jesus will not perish, but will have everlasting life. The, the receiving of eternal life is thus a result of believing. Uh, believing is not the result of having received eternal life. You know, later on in the book of John, uh, he closes chapter 20 with these statements. Uh, these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, he said, this is John 20, verse 31. I wrote these things so that you'd believe. Well, he must have assumed that was a possibility for his readers to believe. And that by believing, they will have life. Again, life comes from the believing. Uh, Paul's very clear on this, too. I mean, anytime the Bible talks about uh, passing from death into life, it's because you have believed. It never says because God made you pass from death into life, although God is the one who does it. We're the ones who believe, and God, in response to our belief, regenerates us. Here's what it says in Colossians chapter 2. Um, let's see, where do I want to start here? He says in verse 13, And you, being dead in trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, uh, which was contrary to us, and has taken it out of the way of the cross. Now, because God has done that, uh, we are now uh, given, re we are regenerated, we pass from death into life because, uh, because God has forgiven our sins. And we see it also, uh, of course, in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So salvation is a gift of God that has come to us not through our works, but through our believing. It's by grace through faith. Now, through faith means through the instrumentality of faith. And so it is because we had faith that we also receive grace and are saved. So you never find that, that order reversed in the Bible. I know that Calvinistic doctrine, if you accept it uh, first of all as a starting point, you need to believe then that a person can't believe until they're regenerated, 
which is a good reason not to accept the Calvinistic doctrine, since the Bible actually teaches May the I? opposite. Steve? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, you're going to let me say something? Well, sure. Yeah. I'm not a Calvinist. You I'm just going by what I'm just going by what the Bible says. In okay, Second which, Thessalonians, which in Second Thessalonians, it says all men have not faith. In Galatians five, it says faith is the fruit of the spirit, and faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Now, a dead, unregenerate, unborn-again person does not have the ability to believe. God That's has not the, what it says. The God, it, well, it says all men have not faith. Well, he means Christian How can you faith. believe without faith? And it speaks about that in Romans. In Romans 10, it says, And how... How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? So the key here, and in the third part, and how shall they hear without a preacher? So God takes the word, which is the seed. He plants it in people. That's why Jesus said, those of you who have ears to hear, God has to qualify a person to even hear the word. The seed is planted as in Matthew 13, and God gives a growth. Apollos, I planted Apollos water, but God gives the increase. So the seed is the word of God, according to Mark 4. So once the seed is implanted, God gives it with his, by his own sovereign will, he causes it to grow. And then a person will see his need. And then a person will have faith. And then it's like a baby. When a baby's born, they start, the first thing they do is cry. You didn't have anything to say about your first birth. You don't have anything to say about your second birth. The natural man cannot receive the things of God for their foolishness unto him. Okay, well, let me just say you've rattled off about six scriptures, which I can answer every one of them. In fact, I have. If you look at my series online called God's Sovereignty and Man's Salvation, uh, as we cross-examine the scriptures for um, unconditional election and for total depravity, You'll find that all the scriptures you've given are, I bring them up and I address them and I've let you share them here. All I can say is none of them say what you're saying. None of them say that a person cannot believe until God brings them to life. When it says in Thessalonians, not all men have faith, Paul's clearly meaning the Christian, not, not all men believe God. Not all people have the Christian faith. Uh, I mean, the context is unambiguous there. When Paul says in Romans, how shall they believe without a preacher? Why doesn't he say, how shall they believe without being regenerated, if that's what's necessary? He indicates that if they have a preacher and they hear, then they can believe. In fact, Jesus indicated that while some people have ears to hear and others don't, he didn't say that God is the one who decides who has ears to hear and who doesn't. In fact, uh, Jesus spoke in parables to conceal the truth from people who didn't have those ears to hear. It says, uh, because he didn't want them to hear and believe, assume, uh, assuming that if he had not concealed it in his parables, they would hear and believe, which means hearing is, makes it, uh, and understanding makes it possible to believe. Uh, the seed that's planted is the word of God, but there's nothing in that that says that you know, God has to bring somebody to life before they can have that seed uh, planted. Uh, the, Jesus, when he actually told that parable about the seed being the word of God, said that those who hear the word and believe it, uh, and they spring up because they receive it with joy, uh, can also be among those who aren't saved, uh, who fall away. And so 
I don't know. I just, I mean, I, I would suggest that if you're going to just rattle off a bunch of scriptures that don't actually say what you're trying to prove, you might, I, I realize it's hard when, you know, you only get a few seconds on the air because there's people waiting behind you and they're going to get a chance too, that you can't really make your whole case. However, I have debated Calvinists, and, and you say you're not a Calvinist, but I don't know what you want to call it. Your, 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 your views are the Calvinist views, okay? They didn't exist until Calvinism. Well, they didn't exist until Augustine, which is where Calvinism comes from. So if, you know, I don't know, maybe you don't know about the history of your views, but those verses you're using are being read through a Calvinist grid. And although you, you like most people, think, I'm just getting this right from the Bible. Yeah, you're reading the Bible, but you're reading through a grid that somebody told you you need to see through. And that means you add to the passages ideas that are not in the passages and, frankly, that aren't in the Bible at all. So, I mean, that's my critique of your approach. But if you want to really understand what I would say about those verses in detail when, we don't have a, when we're not in a big hurry here, feel free to go to my website, thenarrowpath.com, look under topical lectures, and there's a series called God's Sovereignty and Man's Salvation. And I go in great detail about every verse that Calvinists ever used on these points. So uh, you can, then I answer them. So if you want a, an unhurried answer, and then going there would be a good place to do it. Thank you. Uh, Todd from Pennsylvania, welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Hi, Steve. Yeah, my question concerns uh, an interpretation of Hebrews 9, uh, verse 16 and 17. Um, in chapter 9, as you know, uh, the writer is contrasting the covenant of Moses with the, the new covenant of Jesus. And um, starting back in, in verse 15, and I'm reading out of the New American Standard because it, it consistently translates uh, this word covenant as covenant. Um, for this reason, he or Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that since the death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, that's the Moses covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it, for a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. So my question is, I can understand that language for Jesus, since he's both the mediator and, you know, the sacrificial lamb who does die. But how should we think of that uh, terms of, in terms of Moses being the mediator of the first covenant, that, that he must have died in some sense, because, you know, God made covenants with lots of people who didn't physically die when they made the covenant, with, you know, Noah, Abraham, David, you know, Moses. Should we think of it in terms of, like, I guess, as a sacrificial representative that the animals who did die, that Moses somehow died through the, the death of those animals? Um, because I, I, I'm just, I guess I'm struggling to figure out how that would apply to Moses, let's say, in particular, that the, the person through whom the covenant was made, since God okay. didn't die, you know, um, how do we best interpret that? And if you understand that question, I'll, I'll take my answer off the air. And thank you. Okay. Thank you for your call. Um, well, first of all, the writer of Hebrews is, is making a play on words. This is one way we know that the book of Hebrews was written in Greek and not in Hebrew. You know, uh, Clement of Alexandria thought that Paul had written the book of Hebrews in Hebrew and that Luke had translated it into Greek, which would explain how many Pauline thoughts are in it. And yet the Greek style is that of that we find in Luke and Acts, which is the most refined Greek in the New Testament. And so the idea that the argument was made by Paul in Hebrew first and then translated into Greek is an attractive one. However, this very passage in Hebrews renders that thesis impossible because in Hebrew, 
the word covenant, brith, does not mean a will, like a last will and testament. But in Greek, it has both meanings. <clears throat> it has the meaning of a will, and it has the meaning of a testament. Now, a will and a testament are not the same thing, or a covenant, I should say. Obviously, a marriage covenant does not take effect when the couple dies. Uh, you know, a covenant, what is said about a covenant does not take effect until the death of the one who testates it. That statement in verses 16 and 17 of Hebrews 9 is changing the meaning because the Greek word can go either way. And he's used, making a play on words. He's saying, you know, there's uh, just like a, a will uh, it requires the death of the person before the will can be enacted and before the heirs can receive the benefits. Uh, and, and he's kind of just, I said, playing on words because the word will and covenant are not the same word, except in Greek, they are. And um, so he's, he's just making an additional point, as the writer of Hebrews often does when he's quoting an Old Testament passage or, or making a point. He's showing some kind of a, uh, you know, almost a, I don't, hard to know how to say it, sort, sort of a tenuous connection in a way, just to illustrate a point. That is to say, when, when the covenant was made through Moses, it didn't require Moses' death to, to go into force. Of course, one could say, as you suggested, maybe the animal deaths, uh, since they are representative of the worshipers, could. But I don't think that's a necessary part of what he's saying here. I think what he's saying is, uh, when we're talking about a covenant, well, you know, actually a will, you know, in Greek, a will is the same thing. And we know that a will uh, takes special force when the, the person dies. And so also the new covenant comes into existence when, the, when we have died to the old covenant. Uh, when Jesus, we died in Christ, Jesus died, and therefore he enacted the new covenant. It's, it's a very, it's a tenuous connection. And it's, uh, it's, it's little else than a play on words from the Greek. But uh, it's not entirely unlike Hebrews' uh, arguments on, in some other points, too. Some of the ways that the scriptures are used, even, even the way Paul uses scripture to make a point. You know, when he says that uh, in Galatians, that Abraham and his seed, the promises were made. And he doesn't say to seeds, plural, but seeds, singular, which is Christ. Well, Paul's making a play on words. Certainly, the word seed in the Hebrew and in the Greek uh, is singular and plural. And for him to say, oh, it's not talking about this, the plural, but it's talking about the singular. Well, that's not proven by the use of the Greek word, although Paul acts like it is. What he's pointing out is the wording of it allows for us to understand it the correct way, that the seed actually is not referring to a group of people. It's referring to a person. But he talks as if the wording itself encourages that. Well, only in the fact that seed can be singular or plural. Uh, these are... These are rhetorical ways that an argument is being made. We may not appreciate that if we expect uh, authors to write differently than that, but that's the way the biblical authors sometimes do argue a point. And here, he's not saying that the Mosaic Covenant could only go into effect with the death of God or with Moses or whoever is seen as making that covenant. He is saying that the New Covenant could not go into effect uh, without that because it's in this respect, it's like a will that requires the death of the testator. But not all, not all covenants would fit that, uh, that qualification because not all testaments are wills. And so he's, you know, he's kind of making the point Jesus died. You know, the new covenant came when he died. The new, uh, you know, will uh, was enacted, you know. But it's not literally a will. Uh, on the other hand, 
it it can it can be illustrated that way, and that's how the writer of Hebrews chooses to do it. I appreciate your call. It is a uh, it's actually kind of a sticky question to answer, obviously, because we have to acknowledge that sometimes the writers use rhetorical devices that they they and their listeners both know are not decisive, but they're illustrative. You know, his point is decided on other grounds than that point. This point just makes an interesting illustration or parallel. That's all he's using it as. Alberto from San Diego, California. Welcome to The Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Well, hi, Steve. Uh, God bless you. Um, my question is re- in regards uh, uh, in Chapter 1 of uh, Genesis, um, verse 12, where it says that God uh, created everything. He created the, the plants and the fruit trees and the herbs. And he said that, um, that God saw that it was good. Um, I was uh, wondering... Um, since God created marijuana, is it is it wrong or is it a sin to smoke marijuana? Well, everything God made is good, and that would have to include marijuana, I would assume. But good for what? You know, not everything is good to eat. For example, God made uh, poison oak, but you'd be very foolish to eat it or to smoke it. I think you could kill yourself doing that. Uh, there are certain uh, food uh, plants that God made that are definitely poisonous. Now, they have a purpose, and uh, I don't know if scientists have always found what their purposes are, but they found purposes for many of them, and they no doubt could, given enough time. I'm sure marijuana has a purpose, but as a recreational drug, uh, I, don't, uh, you know, I don't think it has a purpose for that, even though it can be used for that. Same thing is true of heroin, you know, poppies and so forth were made by God. Uh, did God want people to use heroin recreationally? I think not, but... On the other hand, uh, if it can be made into, you know, if morphine or, or even cannabis, you know, has ingredients that can be used as medicinal, then to use it for medicinal purposes can hardly be objected to. So, yeah, God made every plant good, uh, but not all are edible. And as far as I know, as far as I know, none of them were made to be smoked. Uh, I, I can't be sure that none of them were made to be smoked, but we don't have any reason to believe that God made any of them to smoke. That sounds like a very unnatural thing to shoot air, uh, smoke into your lungs, any kind of smoke into your lungs. Uh, it's not very healthy. So uh, the fact that God made all things good, and marijuana is one of the things he made, so it's good, only requires us to decide what then is it good for. It seems to be good for for medicinal purposes and some other and, and other medical reasons it has been used for. So that's how I'd see that. Uh, Carrie from Texas, welcome to the Narrow Path. Thanks for calling. Steve, I have two questions in Revelation 20. Okay. In verse 4, and I'm reading from the New American Standard, it says, I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given to them. Where is they and them identified in Revelation that's interesting. Uh, obviously, there is not, uh, there's not a, uh, you know, a, a person mentioned or group of persons mentioned prior to that, but they are mentioned after that. He says, "I saw the souls of those that were slain for the word of God." Now they were, they are the ones he sees sitting on on thrones uh, in the next, uh, well, later in the same verse, in fact. So, um, you know, it, it, they they who were reigning are the ones that he later sees on thrones or describes as seen on thrones. So that's who he's referring to. Okay. 
And then in verse uh, 8, the Gog and Magog, can you identify those? Um, I don't know who Gog and Magog are supposed to be here, if anyone. You know, there's Gog, the chief prince of Magog, mentioned in Ezekiel chapter uh, 38 and 39. And uh, obviously those names are taken here from, those, from that passage in Ezekiel. But there's not necessary any reason to, um, to say it's the same Gog and Magog because what we have in Revelation is what some commentators have called a rebirth of images. Tons, hundreds of images from the Old Testament reappear in the book of Revelation, but with new identities. So, for example, the two witnesses are referred to as the two olive trees that stand before the Lord of all the earth in Revelation 11. But the two olive trees in the Old Testament are in Zechariah 4. They're Joshua and Zerubbabel, apparently, most people would say. And, uh, and yet the two witnesses are not them. But the same term, the same imagery that's used for Joshua and Zerubbabel, the two olive trees, uh, is now used for the two witnesses. It's just a reappearance of the same imagery, which uh, is being used in a different situation for different characters in the book of Revelation. So the, the book of Revelation has at least two or 300, maybe 400 uh, allusions to Old Testament images and, and passages. But very seldom are they talking about the same thing. Uh, for example, the four beasts in Daniel 7 seem to be reappearing in the beast of Revelation 13, but they're all combined into one beast there. But it's a combination of the imagery from Daniel. And so also Gog and Magog here, I think, simply re represent, as in the passage suggests in Revelation 20 and verse 8, that this re represents all the, the people of the, of the earth who are uh, on Satan's side. They are Gog and Magog. Now, Gog and Magog in Ezekiel was somebody else more specific, I believe. But the terms are used again in Revelation, as so many Old Testament terms are, with a, a new application. And, uh, and as near as I can tell from the context, it just refers to all the nations of the earth under Satan's direction coming against the people of God. Hey, I need to take a break. I'm sorry to say you're listening to The Narrow Path. We have another half hour coming up. Our website is thenarrowpath.com. I'll be back in 30 seconds. Don't go away. The Narrow Path is on the air due to the generous donations of appreciative listeners like you. We pay the radio stations to purchase the time to allow audiences around the nation and around the world by way of internet to hear and participate in the program. All contributions are used to purchase such airtime. No one associated with The Narrow Path is paid for their service. Thank you for your continued support. Welcome back to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg, and we're live for another half hour taking your calls. If you have questions about the Bible or the Christian faith or a difference of opinion with the host and you'd like to balance comment, feel free to give us a call. The number is 844-484-5737. Our next caller is Billy from New Rochelle, New York, and Billy's a new listener. Thanks for joining us, Billy. Yes, hi. Uh, good afternoon, Steve. Uh, first time called a listener. I'm a new listener and contributor to the ministry. And I wish you well in, in, your, in your endeavors there. I heard the other day that I was listening and, um, from New York here. And uh, 
you you said that um, that uh, the theology of the Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses is different. But I would like to know: do you, would you still classify them as cultish? And are they saved according to what we believe, the basic Christian tenets, the basic, you know, the divinity of our Lord, the Trinity, which these other Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and others, maybe Seventh-day Adventists too, possibly included in there. Uh, what's your uh, opinion on that? Yeah. Well, Billy, that's a good question. I, I don't know how many ways you can be wrong in theology and still be saved. Uh, it is very clear that Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons and many other cults have a theology that is, in my opinion, not what the Bible teaches, uh, especially about the Trinity. They, they reject the Trinity. This is a, a, true of many, many cults. They reject the Trinity in one way or another. And, uh, and, and they have other problems too. Now, a lot of Christians would say, well, the very fact that they reject the Trinity is enough to say they're not Christians or they're not saved. Well, I think, it's, I think rejecting the Trinity is enough to say they are not what we call Orthodox Christians as per the post-Nicene world, or the post-Nicene church. Uh, before the Nicene Council, I, you know, of course, the Trinity was always true, but it wasn't fully agreed on by all the Christians. Some Christians believed in the Trinity and some did not. And uh, what happened at Nicaea and some of the following ecumenical councils was that the Trinity doctrine got nailed down more, th more completely. And uh, those who didn't believe in it after that were regarded as uh, heretics. They were regarded as not Christians anymore. Now, I guess we would have to ask if a person could be a Christian in the first 300 years of Christianity without uh, knowing about the Trinity doctrine, without understanding it, uh, how is it that they could not also be a Christian uh, without understanding it after those councils. Now, the argument usually would be, well, once the councils decided it, you know, it was, there was no longer any, any grounds for ignorance. Well, yeah, but a lot of Christians thought the councils made the wrong decision. Uh, a lot of Christians, and I don't, I, I'm, I'm on the side of the councils, but a lot of Christians felt like, okay, so the majority of the bishops took a vote and the Trinity doctrine won. Uh, actually, earlier in the Nicene Council, before it was closed, there was a time when most of the bishops were uh, actually leaning the other direction, but they did come back around, apparently through uh, the influence of a man named Athanasius. But the point is, there, there, a case could be made if, if you were living, let's just say you're living in the early part of the fourth century, and you didn't believe in the Trinity, and they had the Nicene Council, and the majority of the bishops voted for the Trinity, uh, you might say, well, you know, I still don't see it in the Bible. And truth is not determined by the majority vote of bishops. It's determined by the Bible. Now, if a person took that position, I could respect them, uh, although I would disagree with them because I think the Trinity is a biblical doctrine. But many people have not thought so, and many Christians did not think so before that time. And I guess we have to ask, does a decision of a majority vote of bishops at a council suddenly rule somebody else not to be a Christian because they don't agree with the bishops that voted that way. Um, I can't make that judgment. God will have to make that judgment. So I would say this. If a person can see for himself that the Bible does teach the Trinity and, and simply refuses that belief because they don't want to believe that, 
well, then that person is not being honest before God, and, and God will have to judge him for that. But if a person is doing their best to understand the Bible and they don't see it, and they're, they're, trying, you know, they're trying to be honest and so forth, that they're just not seeing it, just like many Christians did not through the centuries, especially the earliest centuries, um, you know, does their inability to see it uh, make them enemies of God? Uh, I guess God will have to decide that, but I'm not sure why it would. I don't, you know, it's one of the most difficult doctrines in the Bible to see and understand. And uh, even those who believe it, myself included, would not be able to claim that we fully understand it. Um, I mean, we, we have arranged the thoughts in our minds in such a way as we say, okay, this is how it probably is. But none of us know for sure how the Trinity is to be best understood. Um, and there are some people who still doubt that the Trinity is even what the Bible teaches. Now, I, again, I think they're wrong. But how many things can people be wrong at? and still be people who are lovers of God and followers of Christ. That is something that God's got to judge everyone about. So uh, I'm not saying that a person in a, in a cult is not in a cult. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses clearly are a cult. The Mormons clearly are a cult. And by cult, I mean not simply that they have bad doctrines, because most, most denominations have some kind of bad doctrines, uh, unfortunately. I wish it wasn't true, but there's 4,000 some odd denominations, and all of them have some different doctrines from each other, so some of them are wrong. But we don't assume that all, all denominations are going to hell if they don't have all their doctrines right. So we have to ask ourselves, okay, which doctrines does someone have to believe to be saved? And if we consult the Bible about that, it would appear people have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They have to believe he is the Messiah. They have to believe that he died and rose again. And, uh, and that he's the Lord, and that God commands everyone to submit to him and follow him, and they have to be willing to do that. That's what I understand to be what the Bible teaches. I mean, it teaches those things plainly. It might less plainly teach the doctrine of the Trinity, but it nowhere in any place says a belief in the doctrine of the Trinity is one of the conditions for salvation. And it was never regarded to be such before the Nicene Council. I don't think God changed after 325 AD, I think God is still looking at the heart, still looking for those who love him, uh, looking to those who are committed to him. And if they don't understand some of the more uh, difficult theological points, I don't know. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not sure that God is the type of God who's going to send someone to hell because there's something too hard for them to understand. Uh, I think it's more that if you're on God's side, if you're on Christ's side, if you accept him and you follow him and you embrace him, I think that's, that's what God's looking for. And if you embrace him and you don't fully understand everything there is to understand about him, well, I guess, again, that may or may not reflect something in your heart, but God will have to be the judge of that. We don't, it's not our place to go around judging who's going to be saved and who's not. We certainly know that if someone rejects Christ knowingly, then they're lost. That's clear. But, uh, but the people who say they believe in Christ, but they see him a little differently than I do or you do, uh, you know, I don't know if that's, I mean, I, I would have to consult scripture to let me know if they can't be saved. But uh, as I said, the list of things that actually have to be believed to be saved is a short list in the Bible. But what has to be done is surrender. A person has to surrender to Christ and to God and be on his side and want to follow him and accept his authority. Uh, that is done by many who probably don't have very excellent theology because 
you don't have to be real smart to be a Christian, although some of the smartest people who've ever lived have been Christians, and it's certainly not something that smart people would avoid. But lots of people, you know, are low IQ people, and that and that doesn't uh, prevent them from being able to love Jesus and follow him, even if they couldn't tell you much about theology. At least that's how I see it. So I, I leave the judgment about that with God. Now, I will say this, a cult uh, is a group, in my opinion, at least the way I would define a cult, is a group where a leader or a, an organization has co-opted uh, your right to think about the things of God and about the Bible so that you're not really allowed to think for yourself. You're not really allowed to read the Bible for yourself and reach your own conclusions. You have to follow what the leader or the organization tells you to believe. If, if an organization is like that, it's a cult. Even if their doctrines are actually decent doctrines, it's that very thing that people have surrendered their relationship with God for a relationship with an organization. That's what's cultic. And, uh, and I believe that that could easily keep people from, from being saved. So I believe a lot of people in cults are not saved. I can't say how many in the cults might be saved, and nor is it my place to do so. It's not really part of my assignment to figure that out. God will judge uh, with full knowledge of all relevant factors. So we that's should, all I can really should, say about that. Yeah. yeah. So we should profess the basic tenets of Christianity then, right, then? Absolutely. The ones that the are clear, tenets. yeah. Yeah, the divinity, the Trinity, uh, Christ's uh, atoning death on the cross, we should all profess that then. Well, we should, because those things are true. But I'm saying not all of those things are listed in the Bible as things right. that one must believe. Realize the Bible has a lot of things in it that we should believe. We really should believe everything in the Bible. But there are some things in the Bible that we have a hard time understanding, at least some people do. And I don't think God's going to going to condemn someone because they had a hard time understanding something, uh, oh. you know. So, I mean, there are some things hard to understand. The atonement of Christ. Uh, there's five different ways that Christians have understood that. Four of them are probably wrong or maybe they're all right in, a, you know, in their own way. But, uh, you know, if you have to understand the atonement, then a whole lot of people are out of luck because that's a that's an esoteric doctrine. Same thing with the Trinity. Uh, it's it's an intriguing to someone who loves God and wants to know the truth, to investigate these things and try to gain a, a, a proficiency in, in being able to understand them. But uh, a complete and correct understanding of all those things uh, is not necessarily required for salvation. Uh, you know, it's like, it's like, what if I had the wrong view of the book of Revelation and that would send me to hell? I mean, there's a lot of things that I don't understand. Uh, and yet I don't, I don't have to fear that I'm going to hell because God's not going to judge me on how much I understood, but on how much I obeyed and followed and trusted him. Yes. Well, bless you, Stephen, in ministry. I'm, I'm a new listener and a contributor, and I, I really enjoy your show. Thank you. Thank you, Billy. Good to hear from you. Thank you, Steve. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, call anytime. Okay. Uh, let's talk to John from Lake County, California. John, welcome. Hi, Steve. Uh, listen, I listened to your debate with Dr. White, and I think you did a fantastic job. Um, and uh, um, I think it was Dr. White. I'm not sure what year that was done. Uh, it was a five-part debate. Uh, yeah. uh, you know, you listened, you know, and I think you I think you held your own. And I'm not a Calvinist. Uh, I'm an Armenian like yourself, you know. It almost seems like um, Calvinism 
uh, has made God into something that might be capricious. You know what I mean? Picking some and not picking others. But that's not what I really called about. Um, you know, there's a, I want to point out something in Scripture, and I don't have the Bible with me right now, but there was a, a situation when Jesus was on earth where a building collapsed on, on somebody or on some mm-hmm. people. And they asked right. him, were those any more sinners than others? He's certainly not. And if you don't change your ways, you will go to hell. Or, you know, I'm paraphrasing. Well, mm-hmm. to me, doesn't that imply that those people have to do something uh, themselves to actually accept Jesus as their personal savior instead of being not chosen? Do you see my like point? It, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, I do. And, and, uh, I mean, yeah. I, I, yeah, mean I, about... I don't know if you can. Go on. I'm sorry. You're talking about Luke 13, where uh, there were some people who were slaughtered by Pilate while they were worshiping the temple, and some other people were killed. Eighteen people were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. And Jesus spoke about both cases. He said, do you think those people who died that way are worse sinners than others? They weren't. He said, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, obviously, he didn't say how one repents, but he made it very clear that there's obviously some responsibility to do so. Now, you can't be held responsible to do something if you have no power to do it. Uh, you could wish you had power to do it, or others could wish you had power to do it, but if you can't do it, if, there's a, it's, if it's absolutely beyond your uh, reach to do it, then you bear no responsibility to do it. Responsibility comes with uh, opportunity. And if you have no opportunity to repent, then you have no responsibility to do so. Now, Calvinism would say that the non-elect do not really have the opportunity to repent. It might be presented, uh, you know, kind of as a pretense to them. God might kind of hold it out like a carrot on a stick, but that stick is going to be there and you'll never reach the carrot because it's not really available to you. And God is just teasing. Uh, but, that, but, of course, God doesn't tease. And uh, if God holds you responsible for something, it's because you really could have done it. So if you're going to perish for not repenting, uh, perishing is being punished for not doing something you should have done. And therefore, repenting was something that Jesus assumed they should and therefore could do. Uh, to, to say someone ought to do it means that they could do it. Because you can't possibly say that someone ought to do something that no one can do or that they can't do. Okay, I appreciate I appreciate your thoughts on that. Uh, John, thanks for joining us today. Let's talk to uh, Robert from Sacramento, California. Robert, welcome. Yes, sir. Go ahead. I talked to you the other day, so Steve. I was asking you about uh, the speaking in tongues. Okay. And, uh, you know, they say that when you pray in the, in, the, in the spirit, that you pray out the things that are written in your book of life. So how, since I can't speak in tongues, how am I going to pray those things out so that I can live those things out in my lifetime and fulfill my, my, my assignment here on the earth? Well, first of all, the Bible doesn't actually say that. I guess maybe your preacher told you that, but that's a strange thing for him to say, to say that when you speak in tongues, you're praying out the things that are written in the book of life. Uh, the only thing we know of that's written in the book of life is the names of those who are redeemed. Um now, there are books mentioned in Revelation 20. There's the Book of Life and there's other books. And it would appear that the other books contain the works that everyone has done, which are brought up as evidence in the court on the Day of Judgment. And uh, they're judged by their works out of the things written in the books. But the Book of Life is there separately. And, and whenever the Book of Life is described, 
it seems to be just a a, uh, a intended to be a list of names of those who are saved. That's how I understand it. So I don't know what you'd be praying out of it. You can't repray somebody's name out of it or into it. So, yeah, if a preacher said that when you speak in tongues, you're praying out think you know the contents of the book of life that's there's not a scripture anywhere to suggest that that's coming straight out of his imagination and i'm not even sure what it means now of course if praying out the things that are in the book of life is a a necessary thing for us to do uh, in order to fulfill the will of god uh, and we have to pray in tongues to do that then i guess praying in tongues would be absolutely necessary for us to fulfill god's will but those ifs don't exist. Uh, there's nothing in the Bible that says we're supposed to pray out the things that are in the book of life, nor is there anything in the Bible that says when you pray in tongues that you are praying out those things. So I'm afraid, you know, both both the premises are totally without biblical basis. And I think the preacher who told you that is one that you might need to reconsider listening to in the future. Uh, let's talk to Michael from the Bay region. I assume that's the San Francisco Bay. Hi, Michael. Yes. Um I have two questions about John the Baptist. Um, when uh, John first sees Jesus approaching, is his reaction to him based on the fact that he's known him all his life as a righteous man? Because, you know, I think they were cousins or something. And my second question would be, uh, when the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus after baptism, how come John doesn't ask him immediately if he's the Christ? Uh, okay. Why didn't John ask him, are, the, are you the Christ? <clears throat> I, think, I think John knew that he was the Christ, for one thing, so I don't think he had to ask. <clears throat> now, as far as whether John and Jesus were familiar with each other prior to Jesus' baptism, it's, that's ambiguous. You know, John actually, in, in the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when Jesus came, you know, John is actually you know, saying, oh, I, I, you should baptize me, I shouldn't baptize you. In other words, John is recognizing that Jesus is his own superior, apparently at first sight. And therefore, it sounds like he had, uh, you know, some prior knowledge of Jesus, some prior familiarity with him. On the other hand, in John chapter 1, when John is testifying, and this is after, after he had baptized Jesus, and now he's publicly testifying to it, he said, you know, I didn't know him. I just knew that he who sent me to baptize said, uh, when you see him upon whom the Holy Spirit descends, know that this is he. Uh, and uh, John says, and there I saw it, and I can testify that this is the Son of God. Now, it's interesting that John says he didn't know Jesus prior to baptizing, and only when the Spirit came upon him did he know him. And yet, it seems clear in the other Gospels, John did know. that uh, He knew something about Jesus. He knew that Jesus was different than himself. Now, did he know him from personal familiarity? They were cousins of some kind. Uh, they might have been second or third cousins. Uh, we're not sure exactly what the relationship was of Elizabeth to Mary. That's the connection. Elizabeth was John's mother. Mary was Jesus' mother. But they were Mary and Elizabeth were simply relatives. If they were first or second cousins, then the relationship between Jesus and John would be more distant yet. What, third or fourth cousins or something? twice removed or something. I don't even know how to... How to they were the same age, right? Yes, yeah, so within, within a few months of each other, uh, like within six months of each other in age. But, um, but they, they, didn't, they didn't grow up together. Uh, John's family was down in Judea, it would appear, and Jesus was raised up in Nazareth. 
And John, from an early age, I'm going to guess it was probably from about age 13, from bar mitzvah time, when he became a man, uh, officially, he lived out in the wilderness, and Jesus didn't spend his time out there. So it's, it's possible they never crossed paths, or that they had, if they had seen each other ever, it's possible that they had seen each other a few times in family gatherings of some sort. But we don't have any evidence that they were closely acquainted with each other. Now, John may well have known the story of Mary's pregnancy and of Jesus and so forth from his mother, who knew it. Um, but, you know, I don't know. And maybe he knew Jesus by sight somehow. I, we have no idea what contact they may or may not have had, though we don't have any evidence that they had a lot. But what's interesting is that although John recognized that he was his superior, and I think that would suggest he probably knew that Jesus was the Messiah and therefore objected to baptizing him and said, you should baptize me. Uh, but he yielded when Jesus said, no, go ahead, baptize me. It, it's necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. Uh, John went ahead. But it wasn't until the dove came down on Jesus' head when he was baptized that John knew really who he was. Now to say, I didn't know him, but I just knew that he that the Spirit comes down as, uh, you know, as a dove is going to be him. And now I've seen it. And now I can testify that he's the Son of God. I think what we have to say is John saying, it's not like I had absolutely no familiarity with him, but I didn't really know him as I do now. I didn't know he was the Son of God until this the same about his brothers. Yeah, yeah. His brothers knew him, but they didn't know he was the Son of God until after his resurrection. And John... You know, John, how would he be able to, after the baptism, testify that Jesus was the Son of God? Well, when Jesus was baptized, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And John heard it. And so he says, Now I've seen the dove come down. I've heard the voice. I can testify to what I now know and have seen, that he's the Son of God. But I didn't know that. But is it later in the gospel that he sends people to ask if he's the Christ? He does. He does, but that's only because I think, well, there's two, po there's two theories about that. One is that John himself, maybe three theories. One is that John is having doubts. It's not impossible. He was like Elijah. Elijah even had doubts. Even after he, he did miracles and stuff, he, had his, he, had his, he was despondent. And John was in prison in a third world jail on trial for his life, no doubt. And uh, Jesus was doing nothing to get him out. And if Jesus was the Messiah, according to Jewish thought, he'd overthrow the Romans. And that would mean that John would be released from this Roman jail. But Jesus wasn't making any, you know, moves that direction. John may have wondered at this point, was I wrong about you? Or he might have been trying to shame Jesus and saying, listen, I know you're supposed to, you're the Messiah, but aren't you supposed to be doing something? Are you the one who's coming or are you not? And, and you know, so it, it may be that John was trying to just psychologically pushed Jesus in the direction that he thought Jesus was being a little uh, you know, slow at. Or there are some who think, and this is not my theory, but it's not impossible. Some think it was the disciples of John who had doubts and that they were saying to John, hey, John, I thought you said this guy's the Messiah. He's not doing anything to drive the Romans out. That's what the Messiah should do, isn't it? Uh, how do we know it's really him? And John said, well, why don't you go ask him, knowing full well that Jesus could give a convincing answer. Uh, so, I mean, when the disciples from John came and said, are you the one who's to come or not? John wanted us to ask you. It may be that it was they and not John that had the doubts. So we don't really know much about that. But even if John had doubts, and I don't have any problem with believing he did. I believe that anyone can have doubts, even a strong believer at times. Uh, and, and John was probably depressed 
And when you're depressed, you sometimes lose your grip on uh, on your assurance on things. So, yeah, it's one one or another of these things is probably true. Either either John had his doubts, or he didn't have his doubts, but he's trying to kind of pressure Jesus into getting with the program, or his disciples had the doubts, and he wanted to send them to Jesus so that they could have their faith strengthened by Jesus' answer. Uh, those are all theories that could be true, and it's impossible for us to say that one or the other is. When John right. changed his ministry, had, had he gone to town and start preaching and everything because he was out in the wilderness, and then suddenly Herod finds out what he's saying and everything. Well, everyone knew what John was saying because the Bible says that all of Judea and, and Galilee went out to hear him. Pharisees were there. All the critics were there. He was a phenomenon. I mean, they didn't have that much going on in those days out of the ordinary to entertain people. And, and here was a revivalist going on. And so he, you know, everybody was aware of him. And yeah. but he also did condemn Herod for his adulterous marriage. And uh, it says that he rebuked, in, in Luke 3, it says that John rebuked Herod for all the evil things that Herod did. So even though John was baptized in the wilderness, he must have on occasion maybe gone and stood outside the palace and started calling out denunciations of Herod. Uh, you know, we only have a, a extremely fragmentary record, records of what John did. Uh, right. In fact, we actually have very fragmentary records of what Jesus did, but we have much more about him than we do about uh, John. Anyway, so we either have to, you know, be content to be ignorant about some of these things or else we can kind of put together a scenario that makes sense and, and hold it tentatively. We're out of time now, but I appreciate your call today. You've been listening to the Narrow Path radio broadcast. My name is Steve Gregg. We are listener supported. If you would like to help us pay the radio bills, you can write to us at the Narrow Path P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593. That's the Narrow Path, P.O. Box 1730, Temecula, California, 92593. Or go to our website, thenarrowpath.com. Thanks for joining us.